Rathbone's Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood. I'm Andrea Catherwood and welcome to the latest episode of the Rathbone's Look Forward series. I'm talking to some of the great thinkers, journalists and writers of our time, focusing on the future of our changing world. Today, we focus on the future of work with Daniel Suskind, author, Oxford economist and former government advisor. His latest book, A World Without Work, is a visionary account of how technology will transform the world of work and indeed leisure and what we should all do about it. Daniel, welcome. It is a pleasure to have you here today. It's a great pleasure to be with you. A World Without Work. It's an amazing title for your book because just a few months ago, it might have been very hard for any of us to have imagined that. But so much has changed since just March of this year. And I wonder if you think that this pandemic has actually been a game changer and that the world of work is never going to look as it did just a few months ago. I think so. And as you say, I I wrote A World Without Work because... You know, every day we hear stories of systems and machines that are taking on tasks we thought only human beings alone could ever do. You know, making medical diagnoses and driving cars, composing beautiful music and designing lovely buildings. What does all of this mean for the vast majority of us for whom our job is our main source of income? And I wrote this book because I didn't think we were taking seriously enough the threat of a world where there isn't enough work for human beings to do because of just this relentless advance of technological progress. And what's so striking about the moment we now find ourselves in is that we find ourselves in a world with less work, not because, you know, the robots took all the jobs, but because this virus has just completely decimated the demand that so many of these jobs rely upon. And the measures that we've introduced, lockdowns, for instance, have constrained so many of these parts of the economy that would have traditionally provided people with lots of work. And so lots of the challenges that I thought we'd face in the coming decades because of automation, uh, we now face right now because of this virus. And many of the interventions that I discussed and debated with myself about in the book, we now find ourselves appealing to. Again, not because we're trying to respond to the threat of automation, but we're trying to, to deal with this virus. Indeed. And we'll come on to talk about that a little later, because I was struck reading the book about how some of the other things that you talk about that sounded quite futuristic or radical are actually things that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has brought in quite recently. That's right. Uh, And we'll also talk, of course, about the long term impact of COVID-19. But I'd like to bring you back, if I may, to the beginning of your book and indeed to one of my favourite tales of economics and invention, the great manure crisis of 1890. Just talk us through it and why it's so relevant. Of course. And and the great manure crisis of the 1890s shouldn't have come as any surprise. Um, You know, for some time in big cities like London and New York, the most popular forms of transport had relied upon horses, you know, hundreds of thousands of them uh, to heave cabs and wagons and, you know, a whole spread of other vehicles through the streets. And inevitably with these horses came manure and lots of it. One enthusiastic health officer working in Rochester in New York calculated that the horses in his city alone produced enough to cover an acre of land to a height of 175 feet. So that's almost as high as the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And you have stories of people at the time extrapolating from that sort of calculation to a sort of inescapably manure-filled future. So one New York commentator who predicted that piles of manure would soon reach the height of third-story windows, Uh, a London reporter who imagined that by the middle of the 20th century, the streets would be buried under nine feet of the stuff. And The story goes, it said that policymakers just didn't know what to do. Uh, They couldn't simply ban horses from the streets. The animals were far too uh, economically important. But of course, the twist in the tale is that in the end, the policymakers didn't need to worry. In the 1870s, the first internal combustion engine was built. In the 1880s, it was installed in the first automobile. And then only a few decades later, Henry Ford brought cars to the mass market with his famous Model T. And By 1912, New York, in fact, had more cars than horses. Five years after that, 
the last horse-drawn tram was decommissioned in the city and the great manure crisis was over. And in most versions of this story, the decline of horses is sort of cast in an optimistic light. It's a tale of technological triumph. But for Wassily Leontief, who was a Russian-American economist who would win the Nobel Prize in 1973, the same event suggested a far more unsettling conclusion. What he saw instead was how a new technology, this combustion engine, had taken a creature you know, that for millennia had played a central role in economic life and had banished it to the sidelines. And in a set of articles that he wrote in the early 1980s, Leontief made one of the most infamous claims in modern economic thought. What technological progress had done to horses, he said it would eventually do to human beings as well, you know, drive us out of work. What cars and tractors were to them, robots and computers would be to us. And today the world is gripped again by Leontief's fear. So in the US, 30% of workers now believe their jobs are likely to be replaced by robots and computers in their lifetime. In the UK, the same proportion think it could happen in the next 20 years. And in this new book that I've written, A World Without Work, what I'm trying to do is explain why we have to take these sorts of fears seriously. Not always their substance, and I explain why, but certainly their spirit. Daniel, it's, it's worth saying, isn't it, that throughout the last few hundred years, often people have worried that they are going to be replaced by machines, and indeed leading economists have predicted it before, and their fears were misplaced. Machines have always actually meant that there was more work created, a bigger economic pie. Why did they get it wrong then? And why do you think that it's different this time round? That's absolutely right. And I think any account of the impact of technological change on the world of work has to start from the fact that, you know, ever since modern economic growth began, people have sort of suffered from periodic bursts of anxiety about the machine of the time taking over their jobs. And yet time and again, they've turned out to be wrong. You know, in general, there's always been enough work uh, for human beings to do. And that has to be the starting point. And, and that's the starting point of the book. The short answer to the question, why is it that this time is different, is just simply that these systems and machines are becoming increasingly capable. They're just gradually but relentlessly taking on more and more tasks and activities that until recently we thought only human beings alone could ever do. The longer answer is that when you look at the different economic forces that have helped workers in the past, that have tended to increase the demand for the work of human beings, I think there are reasons to be worried that those economic forces will not be as strong in the future. So just you know, one example you mentioned this idea of the bigger economic pie, and, I, and in a sense, yes, you know, people have been displaced from certain corners of the economy, but as the economy has grown and got larger, there's been work elsewhere for them in the economy to do. But yet, when you look at particular corners of the economy today, that story doesn't hold. So, you know, take the UK agricultural sector, for instance. You know, this part of the British pie has grown dramatically over the last century and a half, but it's not created more work for people to do. Now, British agriculture now produces five times more than it did back in 1860, and yet it only requires a tenth of the workers to do it. It's the same story in manufacturing in the UK. The sector now produces about 150% more than it did in 1948, but it requires 60% fewer workers to do it. And that's the sort of story I'm trying to make sense of in the book, that when you look at these forces that might have helped workers in the past because of this relentless advance of technological progress, uh, it's not obvious that those forces are going to be as strong in the future. I wonder if you can give us an idea, a flavour of what the future looks like. I mean, I was struck um, in the book you talk about Balfour Beatty, a major construction company, saying that on construction sites, they're aiming for them to be human-free by 2050. So just give us a taste of the kind of jobs that you think AI can actually take away from humans in the next 20, 30 years. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I should I should just preface all of this by saying if, if anyone picks up the book hoping for an account of some sudden technological big bang in the next few years after which we all wake up and find ourselves without work, they're going to be disappointed because I don't think that's likely to happen. You know, work is going to remain for some time to come. But what I do worry about, and this is the worry that runs through the book, is that as we move through the 21st century, more and more people are just gradually going to find that they're not able to make the sorts of economic contributions to society that they might have hoped or expected to make in the 20th century. So it's a less sort of sudden or dramatic story, but I don't think it's any less troubling. So it's not a story about you know large parts of the labor market suddenly disappearing. And one of the points I also make in the book that actually this you know this focus that we all instinctively have on trying to identify jobs which are, which are at risk or jobs which are safe is not a very revealing way to think about the future. And, and the reason is, is that because when we think about the future of work in terms of jobs, we're encouraged to think of what we all do in our jobs as a sort of monolithic, indivisible lump of stuff. Uh, you know, lawyers do lawyering, doctors do doctoring, teachers do teaching and so on. But, you know, all these different jobs are made up of lots of different tasks and activities. And while some of these tasks and activities can be automated, others are very hard to automate. But the changes, again, are, are less dramatic. It's changes in the sorts of tasks and activities that people do rather than sudden disappearance of you know, in, entire jobs. And, and this has been reflected in research on, on work as well, that there's very few jobs which can be entirely automated. But there are many jobs which have a very substantial chunk of them that can be automated. So rather than there being, for example, no lawyers, uh, you're saying that there will just be many fewer lawyers because a lot of the document checking, etc., can be done by AI, and then you need an overseeing partner to check it all out at the end. That's right. I mean, so, you know, the idea is that there'd be fewer people doing different things. And it's not always the interesting things that remain. And this is a point that I try and emphasize in the book, that there's often a sense that what it is that we can automate are the sort of boring, repetitive, routine, dull stuff, and that we can get that out of the way and that these technologies will, in a sense, you know, free us up to be more human, to do the sorts of things that we always wanted to do in our jobs. And it's an idea that's baked into the language that we use. You know, the word robot comes from the Czech word robota, which means slavery or drudgery. You know, there's an idea, you know, machines do the, the repetitive or the dull stuff, but that, that's actually not true. You know, some of the things we find most interesting to do with our heads turn out to be easiest to automate, predicting the outcome of a legal dispute or drawing up a legal contract or, you know, making a medical diagnosis or composing a, 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 an earnings report or a news report. You know, these are things that many people get a lot of stimulation and interest from. And yet they're, they're relatively on the, on the sort of spectrum of things that are hard or difficult to automate. They're relatively easy to automate. Conversely, some of the things that we find most dull and most unstimulating are the hardest to automate. Whether, you know, it's why we don't have a good robotic cleaner, for instance. Many of us would rather, you know, not have to empty our dishwashers or clean our houses. That's pretty dull, repetitive work. But we don't have a system or machine that can do that stuff because actually it's very difficult to automate. What about jobs that require empathy? Because very often we think that those are the jobs that can't be replaced by robots, if you like. You talk in the book about robots being able to do some of those jobs, not because we can give them the power of empathy, but because robots can circumnavigate the need for empathy. That's right. And it's, it, it's a general point, which is that it's not just the faculty of empathy, but it's also things like creativity or judgment. You know, traditionally, many of us have thought that machines and systems could never do things that require those sorts of faculties from us. And yet, exactly as you say, increasingly they can. And, and the reason for this is that a revolution, I think, has taken place in the world of artificial intelligence. And I, I write about this a lot in the book, which is that in the beginning, when artificial intelligence as a field was first finding its feet, the dominant view in the field was that if you wanted to build a machine to outperform a human expert, you had to sit down with a human expert, get them to explain to you how it was they did whatever it was you were trying to automate, and then you tried to copy them. 
So if it was a machine behaving empathetically, you try to understand the rules or the thinking processes that a human might go through if they were empathetic or if they were exercising judgment, you might try and copy, again, the rules or the thinking processes that they went through. And of course, that approach hit a very clear dead end, which is that if you ask a human being, how is it you exercise judgment, they're going to struggle to explain themselves. If you ask a doctor, how do you make a medical diagnosis? They might be able to give you a few rules of thumb, but ultimately they'd struggle. They'd say it requires things like gut reaction, instinct, intuition. You need to look the patient in the eye. You need to get a feel in the room for what the problem is. And because those things were very hard for us to explain, many people thought they'd be very hard to automate. If a human being can't articulate how they do these things, where on earth do we begin in writing a set of instructions for a machine to follow? But if you look at the systems and machines that are increasingly being used today, they don't try and copy the way that we think or reason, the way in which we interact empathetically or the way in which we exercise our judgment or our creativity. You know, a system developed at Stanford that can tell you whether or not a freckle is cancerous as, as accurately as leading dermatologists. It's not trying to replicate the judgment that a human doctor might use. It, you know, it knows, understands nothing about medicine at all. It's got a database of about 130,000 past cases, and it's running what's essentially a pattern recognition algorithm through those cases, hunting for similarities between them and the particular photo that you've given it. You know, it's performing the task in an unhuman way, based on the analysis of more possible cases than any human doctor could hope to review in their lifetime. It doesn't matter any longer that that doctor can't explain how they made the medical diagnosis. And that's what we're seeing more and more of in the world of artificial intelligence. And, and that's why a whole realm of activity that we traditionally have thought was out of reach because you know, we struggle to explain how we do it is increasingly within reach of these systems and machines. Daniel, I want to come on to talking about education later. Yes. But I do want to ask you just one question because I'm sure a lot of people listening are going to be saying, OK, I get that lots of jobs are going to disappear, but surely we need to be educating ourselves and indeed our children to be able to work and to be able to adapt to the jobs that are left or the jobs that are created, because that's always worked in the past. You feel that it's not going to work this time. Why? So I think for, for some time it, it is going to work in the sense that for some time, I think education is going to be our, our best response to the challenge of technological change. I think in the book, I distinguish between two types of technological unemployment, two different ways that people might find themselves without work because of technological change. One is what I call frictional technological unemployment, where there's still work to be done. The challenge is for various reasons, people just can't take up that work. The second is the more troubling one, which is structural technological unemployment, which is you know where there just simply isn't enough work full stop. But for now, I think the challenge is a frictional one. If we look at, for example, manufacturing jobs, and a lot of people don't necessarily have the skills to adapt and they're not flexible enough to find new work. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, so one of the clear reasons that people can't move to take up the work that's available is because they, they lack the skills to do that work. And clearly in response to that, our best response is, you know, more educational. And when I say more education, I mean, not simply thinking about what we teach people, but how we teach them and then when in their lives we teach them as well. And we can talk more about that in a moment. But even when the challenge is frictional technological unemployment, education can't necessarily solve everything. So think your example of people displaced from manufacturing roles is a really interesting one, because if you look at men of working age in the United States who have been displaced from manufacturing roles by new technologies. There's quite an interesting line of thought that says the reason they're not taking up work elsewhere in the economy isn't because they lack the skills to do that work. There's actually a view that they'd rather not work at all than take up, and it's a really unfortunate term, it's the term pink collar work, but it's designed to capture the fact that Many of the jobs that are being created and are out of reach of machines are disproportionately done by women. So, you know, more than 90% of kindergarten and preschool teachers in the US are women, more than 80% of nurses and 80% of social workers are women. And, and there's a view that, you know, the reason that this, you know, that work, men of working age displaced from manufacturing aren't taking up these jobs is not because of a skills mismatch. It's an identity mismatch. 
They have a particular conception of themselves and they're willing to stay out of work in order to protect that, that identity. And it's not obvious to me that our traditional educational responses is going to be sufficient to, to get people to take up that work. We need a, a, you know, a broader cultural and societal change with respect to how we think about the work that has to be done in the economy. There's also just the, the, you know, the blunter point, which is that alongside the skills mismatch and the identity mismatch is the place mismatch, that people just might not live in the place where jobs are being created. There was a time, you know, at the start of the internet, uh, when people thought that, you know, these sort of worries about place wouldn't matter anymore. Uh, you know, people spoke about the death of distance and how the world is flat. But actually, in looking for work today, where you live matters more than ever. Um, and again, it's not obvious to me that, you know, more education can necessarily resolve that, that place mismatch either. You've given us some fascinating statistics uh, in the book that help make clear the impact that technology is having on the workforce. For example, you say that in 1964, the most valuable company in the US was AT&T, which had about uh, 760,000 employees. In 2018, the most valuable company in the States was Apple, and it had only 132,000 employees. It gives us some idea of the scale that these leading companies just need fewer workers. And as robots encroach on our jobs, you lay out some of the challenges that that brings in the book. And one of the major ones that you talk about is the challenge of economic inequality. Can you talk a little bit about how AI and tech have created more inequality, how they've contributed to it? Yeah, and, and I don't think it's a coincidence that today worries about economic inequality are intensifying at exactly the same time as worries about automation are getting worse as well. I think the two problems are very closely related. You know, today, the main way that we share out income in society is through the labour market. You know, for almost everyone, their job is their main, if not their only source of income. And, you know, inequality is what happens where some people get far more for their efforts than others. And technological unemployment is simply, you know, a more extreme version of that story, but one that ends with some people getting nothing at all. You know, and, and both of those stories are driven by technological progress. They're both stories about how technology makes certain people's work far more valuable, while at the same time making other people's work less and less valuable. And so, you know, those who see sort of technological unemployment, a world with less work as a sort of distant problem lurking out of sight in the future that we don't really have to worry about today. I think that's a big mistake because I think it's very closely related to the inequalities we see around us today. You know, in, in a really quite a real sense, inequality is a sort of birth pang of the technological unemployment to come. The two problems are, are, are very closely related. And the comparison with COVID-19 is very interesting because for me, the fundamental economic challenge that we're going to face in a world with less work is this challenge of inequality. It's how do we share our income in society when our traditional way of doing so, paying people for the work that they do, is, is less effective than it was in the past. And and that, in a sense, is exactly the challenge we face with COVID. How do we share out prosperity when we can't rely upon the world of work to do it, as, as it might have been able to do until very recently? Indeed, we'll talk more about that because it's a very basic question, of course. If we can't work, how are we going to get paid? What are we going to live on? There has been a lot of global interest in the idea of universal basic income. And of course, it's been talked about a lot more recently in light of the economic effects of COVID-19. In your book, I was fascinated to read about the idea of conditional basic income. I, I don't think I've come across that before at all. Can you just talk us through the differences between universal basic income uh, where everyone gets a flat rate, if you like. Yeah, I mean, so so the answer to the, that question before, how do we share our income in society when we can't rely upon the world of work to do it? The answer that I set out in the book is, well, we're going to need the state to do it. We're going to need the state to take a far larger role in sharing out prosperity in society. And we've seen a conservative government take on a very big state role during the pandemic, which we just wouldn't have expected to see. And I think probably 
reading your book during the pandemic, um, I saw your book in perhaps in a different light. Ideas that might have seemed really radical within the book are now something we're actually experiencing at the moment. Well, I think that's exactly right. Not only have we do we face this challenge of inequality or challenge of sharing out prosperity in society at the moment due to this virus, but many of the proposals that I wrote about in the book responding to a world with less work, not because of a virus, but because of automation. Uh, and as you say, that some people at the time when the book first came out a few months ago dismissed as being too radical are precisely the sorts of interventions that we're seeing being adopted around the world. You know, we have seen the state in almost all countries step forward to take on a role in sharing out prosperity that would have just been unimaginable to many people a few months ago. And so it's been a sort of confirmation to me that the ideas and the interventions that I was writing about in the book that did seem quite radical were, you know, on, on the right track. And one key part of this is the universal basic income. You know, that's a, a way in which the state can share out income in society by giving everybody in society a basic income, a basic pay packet, independent of whatever their work status is. So it doesn't rely upon the labor market. And in, in the book, I'm actually quite, as you say, I'm quite skeptical of the idea of a UBI, not because I think the basic income part of it is a bad idea, but what worries me is the universality, that everybody gets it with no conditions attached. And that's why I argue for a conditional basic income in the book, which is something slightly different. And and the reason for this is that you know today, social solidarity comes from a sense that everyone is paying into the collective pot through the work that they do and the taxes that you pay. And if you're not in work, there's an expectation that you're looking for work or actively training for, for alternative types of work. What worries me about a universal basic income is that it, it runs against that, that it's quite hard to see how you maintain a sense of social solidarity when only some people are paying into the collective pot and others are not. And so what I argue is that you want to attach some conditions to the basic income. And they may not be economic conditions because, you know, there may simply not be work for people to do in order to make an economic contribution. So I say, let's try as a community, as a society to identify sort of non-economic contributions that people might be able to make in return for a basic income. So there's a sense that even if you're not paying into the collective pot in an economic way, you might be paying in in another way. And, and, you know, it might sound quite radical, but in a sense that, you know, there's large parts of life today which are exactly like that. You know, today, for instance, 15 million people in the UK volunteer, uh, which is half the number of people in paid work. You know, a huge amount of people already do work that we think is very socially important, but doesn't necessarily have an economic value attached to it. Andy Haldane, the chief economist at the Bank of England, estimated that the value of that volunteering in the UK was about 50 billion pounds. Know, more than the energy sector here. Incredibly valuable work. And the argument I'm trying to make is, well, maybe we should be recognising some of that work in return for a basic income, rather than necessarily requiring everyone to do paid work instead. I'm also interested in inequality in terms of the types of work that we do. Mm. The pandemic has starkly showed us the monetary value that we place on essential workers, those people that are stacking shelves in supermarkets or working as a hospital porter, you know, we've realised their value is so high in terms of our societal need and yet their pay and their conditions are often some of the lowest. They might well be on zero hours contracts, etc. Our economies and societies uh, we know would collapse without having these people around. So do you think we're actually going to reevaluate their worth as we emerge from this and if so, how will that work? How will we do that? This is something I wrote about before the pandemic. And I think the pandemic has really drawn attention to it, that there is, you know, when we call doctors and nurses and care workers and social workers and teachers and criminal lawyers and, and, and others, key workers, there was a sort of twofold irony to it. You know, one was that these roles have, you know, been key for some time and that status is just simply not reflected in their pay. There's also the irony that, you know, some of these roles are precisely the sorts of so-called low-skilled workers that current post-Brexit immigration controls would have kept out. And, and yet we rely upon these workers so heavily. I mean, I, I'm not a determinist. I don't think that we're necessarily going to narrow this gap between 
the social value of the work that so many people do and the the comparatively low market value that they receive in the form of a wage. I don't think that's going to narrow necessarily, but I don't think it's a bad thing that this crisis has really drawn attention to those mismatches. And I also think, you know, in some countries, it, it's going to be easier than elsewhere to to narrow it. So, you know, in the UK, for instance, the state is the main employer for many of those key workers. It could narrow that difference between the social value and the market value of those people's work if it wanted to and, and if people you know call loudly enough for it. What it also has done is it's drawn attention to the fact that conversations about the future of work where we just simply talk about you know, how many jobs there's going to be for people to do. You know, X percent of jobs are going to be automated. Accountants are in trouble, but you know, physiotherapists are safe. You know, those sorts of conversations which take place at the level of jobs is to miss uh, another really important part of this story, which isn't just simply what technology does to the number of jobs, the quantity of jobs, but also what it does to the quality of jobs. What does it do to the, the pay of this work, the uh, security of this work, the you know stability of the work? And you know, there's a good argument to be made, and I try and make this in the book, that well before we'll see the impact of technology having a harmful effect on the number of jobs, we'll see it eroding the pay and the quality and the security of, of many of these jobs before then. And so, you know, the more attention on that sort of phenomenon, the better. In order for any kind of universal basic income to work, of course, the government needs a big pot of money to pay for all of this. It needs to be big state. Now, you do give uh, the example of Apple uh, in 2014 when they paid almost no tax in Europe at all. It's been very well documented that these big companies, particularly companies that that are very profitable, are just not contributing the amount of tax that they should. So we're going to have a really big problem, aren't we? If we can't get these companies to pay tax, how are we going to share out this pot of money with people that no longer have jobs? I think that's exactly right. And that seems to me to be one of the big challenges we're going to face in the coming years. The answer is, is that it requires far greater international cooperation on tax policy with respect to these companies. But as we've seen during this pandemic, even during the sort of crisis that we've faced, this incredibly acute crisis, it's incredibly difficult for countries to cooperate and coordinate. And, and this is what's really concerned me in the last few months. And this is what I've been writing more and more about is about you know, how it, it really does look like one of the reasons the international response to the pandemic has fallen so far short has been a lack of international cooperation. You know, we are going to have to do far more to build stable multilateral institutions that can support international cooperation, not simply to respond to this pandemic or the next pandemic, or but also to respond to these other global problems that we face, you know, partly taxation of large multinational uh, companies, climate change, the other impacts of automation, you know, the impact of automation in developing countries, what we do about building regulatory frameworks for large technology companies. All of these, it seems to me, require more and more international cooperation. They're not problems that an individual country can, can solve by themselves. Let's talk about the power of large tech companies. The big five at the moment, of course, Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook and Microsoft. Now, in the 20th century, you say that our concerns were really more about the economic might of the companies. In the 21st century, our concerns are shifting to how to constrain their growing political power. Now, we've seen the impact, for example, of Facebook in the US presidential election. So tell us a little bit more about the connection with that growing political power and the changing world of work and how you see this developing. I don't think you can talk about the future of work and the impact of technological change on, on the future of work without also paying attention to the large technology companies who are responsible for developing these technologies in the first place. It seems to me that a distinguishing feature of the years to come isn't simply that technology is going to have a big impact on the world of work, but it's also that our lives are going to increasingly become dominated by a small handful of large technology companies. And exactly as you say, I think in the 20th century, our main concern with large corporations has tended to be concerns about their economic power, concerns about things like 
profit and pricing and market concentration. That's the language in which we've tended to worry about the power of large companies. I think increasingly, and I think this is going to become more and more the case in the 21st century, our worries are going to be about their political power. As you say, their impact on things like liberty and democracy and and social justice and so on. So, you know, concerns about Facebook today, yes, there are some people who are concerned about their profitability and and, and so on. But I think far more alarming is their impact on not their economic power, but their political power, the impact that they have on how we live together in society. That, you know, Russia, for instance, is said to, to have been able to use the platform to influence the 2016 election. That's not really a worry about the economic power of Facebook. It's about their political power. And these issues about political power, I think, are just going to become more and more pronounced and, and, and more and more important. Now, we know how much these companies are trying to shy away from any kind of regulation being imposed on them. All their CEOs will tell you when they speak, which we know isn't very often, about how they can self-regulate. Uh, we've seen Twitter banning political advertising, for example, and they have introduced limited fact-checking. All of these companies are trying to do the bare minimum so that they can stop regulation coming onto them from outside. I wonder if you think that it's really too late for us to stop them. Are they just too powerful now for the government to regulate them effectively and indeed for governments internationally to do that? I don't think so. And I think they're certainly only going to become more powerful over time. This question of should we allow them to self-regulate, I think, is a very interesting one. I think clearly that's not going to work. I mean, in part, you might question their motivations. You might question, are they really willing to self-regulate? But even if they were willing to self-regulate, there's a sort of deeper question about whether or not they're capable of doing so. Software engineers, on the whole, uh, are not hired for the clarity and the precision of their sort of moral reasoning. That's not why you hire great computer scientists. So you might worry about whether or not these technology companies, even if they were willing to self-regulate, were actually capable of doing so. I also don't think it's possible that we can simply turn to the state and ask the state to, to do it. You know, there are some people who say that in response to these challenges, we ought to you know, nationalize large technology companies. We ought to treat them like sort of public utilities. But there's no reason to think that the state is necessarily immune from these sorts of challenges either. You know, if you look, for instance, at China and how it uses technology, for instance, with its social credit scores, ranking all its citizens according to their behaviour. Facial recognition systems as well. Quite, quite. So there's no reason to think that that sort of alternative extreme, which is that we ought to just nationalise things, uh, is going to solve the problem either. And and what I think is that we need a new institution analogous to competition authority or antitrust authorities, which are set up to interrogate the economic power of large companies. But we need it to do it not with respect to economic power, but this new institution to do it with respect to political power. And I think it needs to be staffed. And this is quite important. It needs to be staffed by people who are quite different from the sorts of people who staff competition authorities and antitrust authorities. Economists who tend to staff them have lots of really useful tools for thinking about issues like pricing and profit and market concentration and so on. But those tools are not particularly useful at all in thinking about issues like democracy and freedom and social justice and whether or not they might be under threat. And it might sound like I'm shooting myself in the foot of speaking as an economist, but I don't think we're the sorts of people who should be uh, playing the most important role in these institutions, which are designed to constrain the political power of these large technology companies. Not easy to set up, though, because presumably you're talking about global institutions here. I mean, they would have to be able to reach across borders. This is a really interesting question about to what extent does the regulation of these large technology companies need to be global or to what extent does it need to be national? And my sense is that it's not obvious that we necessarily want a global set of regulations that impose the same obligations on technology companies in all different parts of the world. We might want regulations in particular jurisdictions, in particular countries, that reflect the particular political preferences and moral positions of that particular community. 
that Twitter in the UK, it's regulated according to norms of free speech, for instance, that are upheld in the UK, but might be slightly different elsewhere in the world. It's not obvious to me that we necessarily need a global framework for everything. I mean, this is something that my brother, Jamie Suskin, has written a lot about. He, he's written a, a book called Future Politics, looking at the impact of technology on our political lives. And this is an issue I know that he is grappling with at the moment, because it's not, it's not obvious that a global regulatory framework is the right response. Just briefly with what's been happening at Facebook at the moment, We've seen a growing list of companies, some of them really major ones, including Coca-Cola, Unilever, Starbucks, pulling advertising from Facebook. And that is, of course, their main source of revenue. I wonder if you think it's possible that other companies can end up influencing what happens to these big tech companies more than governments can. It may do. The behaviour of both these companies in boycotting technology companies or indeed individuals in, in sort of voting with their feet. But it worries me a little bit, this idea that the way in which we resolve these problems is by sort of having a free market for morality, where people's consumption or advertising decisions determine the sort of moral positions that these large technology companies take. I think we need something more than that. Uh, and that's why I think we need an institution which is dedicated to studying the political power, you know, trying to understand the political power of these large technology companies, and is then empowered to act in the way that, you know, a competition authority or an antitrust authority might be able to. We need something more institutionalized, something more formal. So, yeah, I think this sort of market for morality might might have some impact, but but I don't think it's enough. Daniel, you argue persuasively in your book, A World Without Work, that many people just won't have jobs in the future. And yet, for most of us, it's work that gives life meaning and purpose to an extent. The threat of technological unemployment would deprive a lot of people, not only of their income, but in a very real way of their sense of self, their significance. Why do you think that work has become so central to our identity? It wasn't always this way, was it? No, it wasn't. Um, and I, I think instinctively, many of us as as you say, tend to think there's an important link between the work that we do and the sort of person that we are. You know, that work is a source of meaning and purpose and direction. I like the, the story of the Jewish mum who goes to the seaside with her son and her son goes for a swim in the sea and it turns out he's not a very good swimmer and he's sort of drifting away from the shore and his mum sees him struggling and cries for help. You know, help, my son, the doctor, is drowning. You know, what I like about that is that it captures this idea that the work that we do is not simply a source of an income, but it also, for many people, it's said, is, is a source of identity and meaning and purpose. And so a world where some people aren't able to find work is not simply a world where they may, might struggle to find an income, but it's also one where they might struggle to find meaning as well. I suppose one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is that show that this link isn't necessarily as strong as we might imagine. And you can go far back, as you suggest, but you actually don't have to go that far back. I mean, today, for instance, almost 70% of workers in the US are either not engaged or actively disengaged from their work. You know, only 50% say they get a sense of identity from their job. In the UK, almost 40% you know, of people think their work doesn't make a meaningful contribution to the world. So even today, this relationship between work and meaning, my sense is isn't as strong as commonly supposed. And it's also the case exactly as you say that if you go back to ancient times, uh, you get a very different relationship between work and meaning. Work is thought of as a sort of prohibitively grubby affair. You know, the ancient Egyptian city of Thebes, the law stipulates that nobody can hold office unless they've kept away from trade for 10 years. In Sparta, the law forbade citizens from productive work. Plato and his famous student Aristotle, both held work in really low regard and thought that meaning could only really come through leisure. And that's what I'm trying to do in the book, is just show that this relationship between work and meaning isn't necessarily as strong as, as commonly supposed, either in this present moment or through time. Now, you make the point that it's not only that being at work is seen as a positive, but also the reverse. When people don't have a job, it's often considered a negative, something indeed worthy of shame, you know, tabloids whip up resentment about the unemployed. They use language like benefit scroungers. 
And when we look at some very stark statistics, we find out that uh, suicide rates among the unemployed are about two and a half times higher than those who are in work. So it is clear that we're going to have to counter a stigma that can be attached to unemployment. How do we go about doing that? I think that's right. You know, if, if you take seriously, and, and again, I don't think, you know, this is necessarily the challenge we're going to face in the, you know, from technological change, at least in the coming years, we're not going to have some big bang where all of a sudden, a sudden chunk of people can't find work to do. But as I said, I do worry about this gradual impact of more and more people finding they're not able to make an economic contribution. And, and what it becomes is it means that these debates about the future of work become less and less debates about the future of work and more and more debates about the future of leisure. And that just as today, we're very comfortable with thinking about labor market policies, about how we might intervene to shape people's working lives. I think in you know more and more, we're going to have to think about leisure policies, about how it is that we might intervene to shape people's spare time as well. Let's talk about education, because our schools are set up supposedly to prepare children for what they can expect as adults. Do you think that we're spending far too much time at school or university teaching people to do tasks that can actually be done better by machines or indeed that won't exist by the time they go out into the workplace? That's certainly one of my worries, that when we think about what we're currently teaching people, you know, very crudely, we have two strategies. Either we want to be teaching people to compete with machines, to do the sorts of things that these systems and machines cannot do. Or we want to be teaching people to build these systems and machines, to be the sorts of people who are capable of designing and operating these increasingly capable systems. What worries me is that when we look at what education systems are currently doing, many of them are doing precisely the opposite. In fact, they're teaching people to do exactly the sorts of routine activities that these systems and machines can already do. So that, that's part of what worries me. What also worries me, and I, I mentioned this earlier, is, is not just what we're teaching people, but it's also how we're teaching people, and it's also when we're teaching people. So on the how, if you were to you know, step into a time machine, as, as people have, you know, other people have suggested, and travel 100 years back in time and step into a classroom, it would look remarkably similar to what most classrooms look like today, or at least until three months ago. The way in which we teach people hasn't changed in spite of the existence of many quite interesting technological alternatives. And so one of my hopes is that in a way, a sort of slightly more positive way of thinking about what's happened during this pandemic is that many organizations and companies have been forced into a sort of massive unplanned pilot scheme in the use of technology in the workplace. And we're going to find out that some things work well and other things don't work well at all. Uh, and this is going to be, I think, particularly true in education as well. And, and, I, and I hope that you know, the education system as a whole can, can learn the lessons of, of what sorts of technological innovations could be kept and maintained as, as we move and recover from this crisis. But the third thing is also when we teach. I think there's still a cultural presumption that education is the sort of thing you do at the start of your life. That's when you take it seriously. That's when you invest in it. And then once it's done, your education's over and you can sort of move through life and you don't have to worry about it again. And, and I think that's a great mistake because there's a huge amount of uncertainty about what skills and what capabilities are going to be valuable in years to come. And the best response to that uncertainty is flexibility, you know, a willingness to retrain and reskill as you move through life with the same sort of intensity and seriousness as you might have done at the start of life. And that change from thinking about education as a sort of one-off thing you do at the start of your life needs to shift as well. I wonder if you can give us a couple of practical examples of what we're teaching that we shouldn't be teaching and indeed how and what subjects we should be looking at how we should be educating our children and young people, and indeed perhaps all of us if we choose to go back into education during our lifetime. You know, what are the skills that would be really useful? Yeah, so let me give you one example, which is that I think there's a, you know, a growing recognition that computer science uh, is an important skill or an important capability to have in years to come. As I said, you can either compete with machines or build machines. Being the sort of person who can design and operate these systems and machines is going to be you know, a valuable thing to be able to do. 
to, to an extent, there's a recognition of this in the sense that, for instance, in England, the curricula have been reformed and to reflect this recognition that computer science is something that's quite valuable. And yet a recent survey of computer science teachers found that many felt quite uncomfortable teaching the material and many didn't have a background in it at all. You know, my fear is that what, what happened here was that the teachers who had been previously tasked with teaching information communication technology, ICT, you know, learning how to use Microsoft Word or Microsoft Excel, had simply been asked to teach this new course, computer science, because it had something to do with technology as well. And as a result, weren't particularly well placed to do it. That, that's an example, I think, of a recognition of, you know, computer science is something that's valuable and important to be teaching. And yet, while we recognize that, we're not yet putting the resources and the, you know, the financial seriousness behind doing that. Daniel, despite the challenges we've discussed, you refer to your book as being fundamentally optimistic. I just wonder how you see the future and why you are so optimistic about how we're all going to cope when the robots are taking our jobs. Yeah. And I, and I, I am optimistic. And, and I say that early on because I, I hope a sort of strain of optimism runs through the book. The reason for my optimism is that in decades to come, technological progress is likely to solve the economic problem that has dominated humanity until now. So, you know, if we think of the economy as a pie, as economists like to do, you know, the traditional challenge has been, well, how do we make that pie large enough for everyone to live on? At the turn of the first century AD, if the global economic pie had been divided up into equal slices for everyone in the world, most people would have received just a few hundred of today's dollars per year. You know, almost everyone lived around the poverty line. And if you roll forward a thousand years, roughly the same would have been true. But what's changed is that over the last few hundred years, economic growth has soared. And that growth has you know, largely been driven by technological progress. Economic pies around the world have become much, much bigger. Now, today, global GDP per capita, the value of those equally sized slices of the pie, is already about $11,000 a year. As the great economist J.K. Galbraith put it, you know, man has escaped for the moment the poverty which was, you know, for so long, his all-embracing fate. And so you know, technological unemployment, in a sort of strange way, I, I see it as a symptom of that success. In the 21st century, technological progress is going to solve one problem, the question of how to make that pie large enough for everyone to live on. But as we've spoken about, I think it's going to replace it with three others. The problem of inequality, you know, how do we share out that pie fairly? The problem of power, and in particular, the political power of large technology companies. And then finally, this issue of meaning and purpose, you know, how we provide purpose to, for people in a world where work might no longer sit at the center of their lives. And clearly, there's going to be you know, huge disagreement about how we meet these challenges. But they are, I think, in, you know, in the final analysis, and this is the spirit of the book, they're far more attractive difficulties to have to grapple with than the one that haunted our ancestors for centuries, which was how to create enough for everyone to live on in the first place. Daniel, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us and for talking to us about this, because it really is so timely and deeply interesting. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure to talk with you. Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood.